part of what I think it takes to welcome change is to slow down a bit, is to welcome a bit more joy in the work, is to build relationships that are genuinely reciprocal. And actually in that is a joy that hundreds of years of a supremacist colonising system has robbed us of. I'm Lee Matthews and you're listening to The Good Problem Podcast, a weekly series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. Working in a sector that is traditionally seen as doing good can mean that often actions and behaviours that are not good at all and in fact cause harm are able to proliferate. International development sector is built upon colonial ideals and has traditionally perpetuated those through a harmful system of top-down do-gooding that actively suppresses development instead of encouraging it. In recent times, voices speaking out against the system have gotten louder and louder, and in fact, a number of them have been guests on this podcast. Today, I've invited Marianne Clements onto the podcast. Marianne is someone who has been speaking loudly about these issues for years now and is actively interrogating her own role in the system. She's a feminist author, facilitator, activist and coach and has spent two decades working in the international development sector. She's also the creator of Healing Solidarity, a project that brings together activists, practitioners and thinkers interested in welcoming the change we need in international development practice and figuring out how to care for ourselves and one another in the process. Welcome to the Good Problem Podcast, Marianne. Hiya, good to be here. Thanks for coming. I'm going to jump right in and ask you something I ask all my guests. What does doing good mean to you personally? I knew you were going to ask this. I thought about it this morning before I got out of bed because I think for me there's a way that I kind of want to steer us away from using that term at all. (laughs) I think that when we sort of imagine ourselves as people that do good it tends to lead to unintended consequences where we we make it about us and the good that we're doing rather than the change that we're trying to create in the world. So for me it isn't really about doing good. And to some extent, that's inspired by a colleague of mine in Healing Solidarity who I interviewed a few years ago for the conference that we do. I remember, it always sticks with me that she said, I'm not here because I want to do good. I'm here because I'm angry. You know, I'm angry about the state of the world. I'm angry about the situations that I'm trying to work on. And I think coming from that energy of trying to create change because there's things in the world that are unfair and unjust, rather than the energy of, I want to be a good person there's a distinction for me and sometimes that distinction isn't obvious and other times it is but that's what change work is about right it's not about being a good person essentially (laughs) absolutely so how do you think your idea about good and doing good has evolved over time you've been in the sector for a really long time is it something that you've always kind of been rolling around in your head or is it something that you did something happen to make you kind of go hey there's there's something very wrong here well for as long as I can remember it's been something that bugs me I think I was you could say lucky right say unlucky in that my dad always had like the tendency to ask questions and to ask difficult questions and he asked them of me very early I think in my work in this kind of world of change 
And also as trained as an anthropologist, and anthropology is funny because you can situate it as being part of a colonial project and, to, you know, in, in a lot of ways it has been and it was, but it also certainly kind of the anthropology that I was trained in, it forces you to ask difficult questions and you can almost never close your eyes to them again. <laughs> like it can be a bit of a pain. <laughs> so there's always that you know what if other people see this differently what if there's something I'm missing here it is kind of ingrained in you so I think I carried it really from the start and I think I found things uncomfortable and the thing that wasn't present in the beginning was what to do with the discomfort like how to act on the discomfort so for a long time there were things that didn't feel right and things that felt uncomfortable and I you know tried to avoid them or skirt around them or talk about them to the side of things you know it's like the conversation you could have after work or in a bar or at the weekend but not necessarily the conversation you're having at the center of your practice so there was pretty much always an awareness of something a bit icky <laughs> but that like not sure what to do with it was very real you know Absolutely. I can entirely relate. There have been many moments, particularly early in my career, where I knew something was wrong with what was happening, but I just didn't have the language or the framework to interrogate it internally, let alone really have those conversations in a functional way. Yeah, exactly. But as another colleague of mine here, so Dirty Jennifer Lemphis says, you know, it's, it feels uncomfortable for a reason. And so what we have to do is talk about that reason, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Did you always intend to work in international development or did you come at it from a, from a different way? Not really. No. And I think like it's important to own our motivations. Like I did do one of those gap year volunteer things in Zimbabwe, actually, when I was 18. And I think my main motivator in that was wanting to see somewhere else I was a person who's pretty dissatisfied with the little English village that I came from and so you know I could have done that in all kinds of other ways but I think there was like a desire to travel and see somewhere else and that was part of the motivator and then you know I did have a sense of you know the world being an unfair place and what can I do about that for sure I did and so I did that and then I thought oh this development thing is complete nonsense there are all these people in big land drivers driving around the place what on earth are they doing and so I studied Swahili and anthropology and I was thinking that I'm never doing this development thing. And then after I graduated, I wasn't sure what to do with my life. I think it's probably a common <laughs> phenomenon. I was sort of drifting around a bit in some community development work in the UK, some research stuff. And then someone asked me to go to Tanzania and do a bit of research because I spoke Swahili decently enough to be able to do that. There's a bit of research into mental health and what services were available and it was you know with the intent of seeing what support could be offered it was an organization called basic needs and I went because I was intrigued and interested you know it kind of dragged me back into development because it was interesting enough and the people that I met there were wanting to create some change for people with mental health problems and services that weren't in existence so there was this like okay well maybe there's a way here I can help channel resources towards something that matters and so I got dragged into it back into it that way really sort of by mistake and for a while I was like oh what am I doing and and then I've sort of gone in and out again so then I I ran an organization called Able Child Africa for a while and then I 
left and I was like, maybe I don't do a development anymore. This is too tricky. And then I started doing dance and I trained as a coach and an action learning facilitator. And I began to see that the problems that I was seeing in development were everywhere in the world that were in anything. They were linked to this structural issues to a world that's racialized, a sort of world in which colonization is a reality and a world in which inequity is a reality and a patriarchal world and a system where actually even if I went to work in marketing or I went to work in I don't know what those challenges would still face me so I sort of slowly came a bit back towards the sector thinking there's something important about how we connect across the globe at this time in our history there's something important about what those relationships look like and they don't all have to look like exploitation of power and privilege and so like what is it what is it that's somewhere in the heart of this sector that could potentially build relationships of solidarity that heal injustice rather than continue to perpetuate it and so I've sort of ended up here still yeah (laughs) well I'm glad you are I want to pick up on some of the ideas that you brought up then around how the entire international development system is actually set up to perpetuate injustice. And you wrote in in one of your pieces, we focus on capacity building as a means through which we justify our existence, perpetuating the idea that others lack skills that we can offer them. And this is something I think about a lot, how we're effectively working within a system where we talk about solving these big problems, but we're actually perpetuating them through the system. It's a really big question, and I know you've thought deeply on it, but where have you landed with how we change this? I've landed with a sense that we have to pay enough attention to ourselves first. And I'll explain a bit because it it kind of, it's a bit paradoxical, but this whole idea of wanting to do good, particularly in other parts of the world, like I'm specifically talking about international development spaces, we often intentionally or unintentionally come from a place of there's something that I can offer. There's something that I know about how to fix something in another place. And we can come from that place often. It can become quite a bit of an identity as well. And so it is tied up with your idea of being a good person, right? You know, I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to work in this sector. I'm going to create change. And we can become so attached to that, that we kind of believe that we know better. And I think capacity building does often come out of that. You know, even if it's not explicitly that, underneath it somewhere lies this idea that there's somehow skills and knowledge that's located usually in the global north, usually in white-led institutions that somehow knows better how to solve the problems of people in largely black and brown communities where we tend to work. And I think in that is the paradox that we're trying to solve a problem that's basically created by a system of colonial extraction over many centuries by telling people that we know better, which was what was at the heart, really, of the logic of colonisation to some extent. So we can't do it from there. And so if we can't do it from there, we've got to start somewhere else. And I think I'm inspired quite a lot by the writing of Aja Marie Brown, and she talks about, you know, the fractals and the small things we do being an important part of the big thing. Like when we look at these big systemic problems, I think often people get kind of, well, what can I do about that? 
But actually, we're all making up those big systems day by day and the things that we do or don't choose to do, which doesn't mean that I can personally solve patriarchy or I can personally solve racism. It's not that. But it's like, if I'm not able to do it in the practice of my day-to-day life, then I can't in any way be part of the solution. So how can I pay enough attention to me? So paying enough attention to me means paying enough attention to my own practice. And often, in order to let go of that ego of being one of the good ones doing good things, that actually means kind of finding our own centre and our own ego from somewhere else. And that actually means giving ourselves enough time and space and support to be in healthy relationship to what it means to create change in the world. I think by being a person who tries to create the conditions where our work can bend towards justice and can bend towards a fairer world. And that often isn't the things that we've been doing in development, right? Which are so about us in a way. Yeah. And this idea of being one of the good ones, and you've written that if I imagine and believe that I'm one of the good ones, I look for problems outside myself. I think that's really powerful because I do think when we position ourselves as a good person or someone doing good work, it's coming from a place of assuming that we have power to change those things, but also that we are the right person to do it. And that we have the answers for other people. What needs to change for a new generation of people that are wanting to go and work in this space? What do we need to be teaching and and asking? I think like we need to, as I said, to spend more or pay more attention to what are the skills and practices that would make that possible. So one thing I've been thinking about also with my colleagues in Healing Solidarity is what are the skills that make dismantling the way we've been doing things and reimagining what this sector and I sort of tend to put development in parentheses because I'm like development is just not a great word. It's a terrible <laughs> word. And I've been using solidarity and I know whatever word you use and you hear lots of other people start using it and then it starts to become meaningless but by solidarity, I, I was always trying to point towards this. What does it mean to come alongside each other in a more mutual relationship? You know, relationship is key to this work. And what is so out of balance in our world is basically relationship. So for me, the whole thing is really relational work on some level. And so I think we need more skills in things like building relationships and less skills in log frames and less skills in like writing funding applications. And of course, for that to shift, for us to really centre practices like building relationship and practices like letting go of being the one that knows best and practices like creating the space and time to allow sort of mutual solutions to emerge, they're completely different from what we've been prioritising. They're completely different skill sets. They would mean a completely different way of working. And it is almost unimaginable in the context that we find ourselves, but I still think it's important to try, partly because I think we have to try and pick apart what's here because some of it's doing harm. And partly because I think we now live in such a globalised world that whilst on some level, I think actually the best thing we can do is be in community with those around us. In reality, we live in a world where the impact of our actions is is across the globe. And so we've got to think about what do healthy relationships look like cross-culturally and globally. And so I think if we in so-called international development can't do some thinking about that and can't think about what good looks like now I go using good but what a healthy relationship let's use that instead looks like then I sort of wonder what we're up to 
<laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's a good question. This makes me think about this idea of doing good and, and identity and how many people who come through their education and they, they want to do good, they want a career in doing something good and helping others. And particularly in the, in the so-called development sector, we see career humanitarians and people that found organisations take on what they do in their work as a core part of their self-identity. And as someone that founded an international NGO at a very young, far too young age, and had no idea what I was doing. I know it very personally. And I think after my organization wound up, it took me a really long time to separate my role as founder and humanitarian Lee from my identity as just Lee. That role had become embedded into how I saw myself, that it was really difficult to know who I was without it. And I, I often think about what we get out of those roles and those identities and how harmful they are to other people in terms of their motivations for doing good. Yeah, totally. And I think none of my ideas are really my own, right? And um, (laughs) I think that, you know, I've been lucky in the last decade or so to have seen and learned a lot about feminist practice and organisations that really think about some of this stuff, right? And I think that what I learned from them is that you have to be asking those questions, that you don't necessarily get to completely extricate yourself from the idea that there's some ego attached to doing good. But if you're in the question rather than just in the panic of it or in the, you know, there's a lot of urgency and busyness in our sector, which is tied up with the kind of bureaucracy and the targets and the projects and the programs and all of this. If we can lay that down enough to be able to ask ourselves those questions as a practice so that, you know, if you had founded an organisation, you know, there was a mentor who said to you, like, are you getting too attached to this? You know, those kinds of supports, right, to even just be asking the question. I think that's what many feminist organisations do much better than the development sector and practices like co-leadership that Davy and Ruby, who are the co-directors of Free to the Young Feminist Fund, have started writing some really interesting stuff lately about co-leadership. And, you know, it's a practice that means you're not on your own, but it also keeps you accountable because you're in discussion all the time about that identity to some extent. And I think some of those reflective questions are things that have been really missing, particularly from the kind of mainstream of our sector. And so we might not be able to solve it all by just being reflective. <laughs> I think if we're not, then there's sort of no hope. (laughs) Yeah, I think a lot about doing good, but particularly around this other side of it, like the status or the ego boosts that people get from engaging in this type of work and to kind of take it a level up, the hero worshipping stuff that we see, particularly in media, for founders or people that are getting these public accolades for their humanitarian work. And in the past, it's really been obvious that those accolades and that hero worshipping are really negating any space for criticism or reflection or or reflective self-practice. And I, I do think it's changing because there is a lot more discussion around what is okay and what is not okay in terms of how we interact with other people and communities. But what needs to happen to change this 
public narrative outside of the sector? Because we're talking about it within it, but what about outside? What about media? What about the general public and their perception of these people that are doing good things in faraway places? Yeah, right. I mean, I thought for a long time that we need to change the way we talk about our work. We just need to be way, way, way more honest about it. You know, what is it really about? Is it organisation X in the UK or in Australia that's, you know, changing the lives of this group of people? No, usually it's a whole chain of relationships. And it's those relationships that are often, you know, inequitable. And how we do those relationships is a big part of what needs to change. And so I think in terms of how we tell a story about our work, it needs to be a more honest story. And the pushback on that is always like, well, it won't raise money. And it's like, well, if it doesn't raise money, that's telling us something. And actually, I'm not sure that's true. I'm not sure it's true that we have to treat kind of the public as so ignorant that they can't understand that. And increasingly, you know, the world's changed a lot since I was a little girl, right? The way that we are able to be connected with different parts of the world, different issues through the internet and through the massive proliferation of different ways of communicating and telling stories and stuff has changed radically. So what an international NGO could put out in the 1980s and no one would question would be horrifying now and questioned very quickly, right? You know, it's just time to get with the programme, basically. And that you know, it might mean some of our organisations disintegrate. Maybe that's not such a bad thing. And part of what I think of my work as being about in different ways is sort of being able to hold some of that space for things to disintegrate to some extent so that something better can come from the ashes you know you know in terms of their marketing that idea that well that's what raises money so that's what we should be doing it is changing and and I think there's space for public discussion and and definitely criticism in in places and spaces like Twitter has really helped there but we still see it and it really kind of flies in the face of even research that's coming out that says that people will respond to positive stories It's not that you have to have an image that is exploitative or harmful or is presented as an undignified representation of somebody that's vulnerable. It's just that that's what we're used to. That's what people are used to seeing. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lack of imagination about how we communicate and a lack of imagination about the possibility to reimagine how we tell stories about our work, basically. Absolutely. I want to pick back up on the discussion from before about white feminism. We know the international development system is grounded in and, and dominated by white saviorism, but white feminism is becoming more prevalent in discussions that I'm having and I'm seeing online. And one of my recent guests, Tamrice Khan, she talked about the harms of white feminism in development. And, and when I asked her what her advice would be, to these white feminists and she said leave us alone to make our own way and solve our own problems and that was really really powerful for her to say that and I think conversely very very confronting for a lot of people to hear and it ties into what we've been talking about all through this episode is that people have dedicated their lives to working in gender in development and have very strong self-identities around who they are and what role they're playing and what is the right thing to do and what 
these other women need. And I think, you know, it's so important for us to be interrogating our own place if indeed there is even one for us as white women in international development. But how do we bring people into conversations that are not going to result in a disengagement from a process of change, that they're instead Mm -hmm. going to make that process of change happen in a way that's not going to be held up because people are disengaging. So when we talk about white feminism, a bit like, and I do some work, I run something with Jennifer Lemfer called Getting Ourselves Together, which is about building anti-racist practice for white people in the international development sector. And we talk a lot about white supremacy culture as well. And I think sometimes when people hear that, they hear you're individually bad because you're white. But actually, What's being described in white feminism, I think, is really a feminism that's purely based on understanding leadership, direction, knowledge, whatever, of white women, you know, doesn't engage, that doesn't stand in solidarity, that doesn't listen, that do, etc. right? And a bit like white supremacy culture totally is enacted through us, but it's not that it's the only way that a white person could ever live on this planet. It's that we are in a system in which... You know, we're used to behaving as though whiteness is the answer and white people have the answer, right? And we're used to behaving as though our privilege is the norm as white people also. And so I think what it's about is understanding this whole piece, really, that there isn't a way in which we have the answers. And certainly there isn't a way in which we have the answers for other people on the globe, let alone for our, you know, the five people around us. And so a lot of it is about releasing that attachment to knowing best, you know, that we've been talking about to being the one who knows best, to being one of the good ones, which I think, you know, ultimately are part and parcel of whiteness. Not that I'm born with them because I'm white, but that in this current structures of the societies that we live in, and this is true across much of the globe to some extent, there's this sense in which whiteness is prioritized that if you're white you get a certain amount of free pass whatever your other marginalizations and that from that comes this sense in us that somehow we're the ones that can solve the world's problems and that we're the ones that know best and so like we have to disrupt that in ourselves and yeah maybe it means leaving people alone and like being okay with that And in my heart and my soul, I think that on the other side of that, letting go and leaving people alone is some kind of way to be in solidarity and connection that doesn't do that harm. But we don't know what that looks like yet. Why do you think it is so hard for people who really strongly self-identify as a helper or someone that does good to welcome change in the sector. It's super interesting. One thing I think about is like many helping professions, you know, there's some kind of peer support and supervision that's just like the norm, right? And here we are in a profession that seeks to help people all over the world and we have absolutely nothing. I mean, here and there, pockets of people trying, sure. But like as a general rule, that's just not a thing. And I think one of the reasons people find it so hard is that they haven't been forced to ask these questions through their career. And instead, they've actually been encouraged not to. They've been encouraged to lean into the bureaucratic processes that make no sense to perhaps their skill in writing funding applications, doing log frames, monitoring things, going around, you know, checking on this and that. And they haven't been encouraged to lean into the question. So it's a big job to do in changing that. And because they haven't been encouraged to do that, 
inviting people to lean into the questions and question their own practice and should I really be here is it's hard for people and like I understand that and it doesn't make it any less critical to do it yeah it's a good thing to raise that in comparison to for example the social work sector you are required to have supervision it is part of your professional requirement to be interrogating your practice and I guess it ties somewhat into people here are more important than the people that you're so-called helping overseas they don't need the same level of oversight and professionality and supervision as we require. I think there's a dissonance, that cognitive dissonance around that, that we see across the development sector as a whole, like, for example, the orphanages sector. In Australia, we fully accept that orphanages are not the right place for children and that they're harmed. We would never have an orphanage here. And yet hundreds of thousands of Australians support orphanages overseas because that's okay for those people over there. Yeah, it's super interesting because what I sometimes hear when I ask people to reflect and think about their role and take time to get some support is that sort of sense of it's not about me. But underneath that sense that it's not about me is actually this dissonance that you're talking about, right? Is this attachment to the idea that you must be doing good. And it takes effort to take that apart. And part of what I think it takes to welcome change is to slow down a bit, is to welcome a bit more joy in the work, is to build relationships that are genuinely reciprocal. And actually in that, is a joy that hundreds of years of a supremacist colonising system has robbed us of, all of us, including white people, right? So I think there is joy on the other side, but there's some reflection that is needed to help us get there. Definitely. Can you tell me a bit about the Healing Solidarity Conference, which you are actually running this week? How did it come about and what are we going to see there? Yeah, sure. You know, this discomfort that we talked about earlier about how things are operating in so-called development space was something that I thought about a lot and actually been involved in conversations about a lot. But I was seeing like another kind of dissonance between people that were quite able to critique the sector and actually doing things differently. It seemed to be quite easy to critique other people in the sector but sort of not really change our practice and not really do anything actually differently. And so I could see myself and others becoming like a critiquer, but not really quite knowing what to do next. I started to get this sense that there was a sort of the flip side of that coin was utterly exhausted people. I did this bit of research with women working in humanitarian space, this small bit of research I interviewed, sort of 30 people or something. All of them were tired basically you know I asked them like three questions about how you're doing they were all totally exhausted didn't have really time to think were like you know this work is so exhausting and it's taken it all out of me and they pretty much all said something along those lines and I started to see this connection we're exhausting ourselves in this bureaucracy over here and over here we're all feeling a bit uncomfortable and not quite right about the work we're doing and I wanted to bring those conversations together and I didn't quite know how or why but what I did was I was lucky enough to have been working with some funders and so I had met lots of organisations and I saw like loads of inspiration in organisations that were mostly outside the mainstream, as it were, of international NGOs, but more like participatory funds, people, feminist organisations that were challenging practice, that kind of thing. And I brought quite a 
few of them the first year together just had conversations with them and recorded them and talked about how do we reimagine and pay some attention to our well-being I think I said at the beginning and like 1500 people signed up for it and I didn't really know what I was doing with marketing I just wanted to invite people into conversation this is now the fourth conference in between times I've brought in a group of five co-directors who lead the project with me we've just brought in a couple of people to help us coordinate the work also and we run an annual conference and this year we're doing it differently so there's no recorded content even though that's where where I started this year it's all live content we're doing two collective care sessions a day that are offered by people from our community that applied to offer those spaces and then we're running what we're calling the in-between conversation which is kind of the main event of the conference and it's going to be through the week so starting on Monday a conversation about what does it take to make different choices in our work and it's going to be a fish bar. I don't know if you know what a fish bar is, but basically start a few people share some reflections and then others who are on the call. So the, everyone who signed up to the conference is welcome to join us and, and sort of get involved in the conversation. So it'll be much more of an experience. And I'm in the first day, so making different choices. Then each day, a different group of people pick that conversation up and take it somewhere else. So we've got a group of activists on Tuesday who we're working in partnership with Civicus, Changemakers. And then on the Wednesday, we've got a group of funders and we're working in partnership with Edge Funders Alliance. And then we've got intergenerational conversations on Thursday and then on Friday we'll reflect on the threads of what does it take to make different choices in our work and in our sector so that's what we have this year a whole different thing (laughs) excellent I can't wait so this might be an interesting question for you based on what we've already talked about but can you think of anyone who has been your greatest influence in doing good so my greatest influence in doing good I'm going to talk about my grandfather So my grandfather was known as Ted. He was a conscientious objector in the Second World War, was in a reserve profession, so didn't actually have to go to war anyway, but nevertheless put himself forward so that he could protest and go to court. And then eventually went and worked on a hospital train where he met my grandmother. So it's sort of a family origin story as well. I don't know if Ted would describe himself as a good person, but he was a person for whom justice and doing what he felt was the right thing really really mattered and I think of him as an inspiration even though at times he wasn't without his faults he was a little bit serious at times and maybe not the life of the party and so I try to bring that that came more from the other side of my family alongside it but that desire for justice and that desire to be in right relationship to what was happening in that time is probably my biggest inspiration, I would say. Now for a a philosophical question, and it's it's based on the work of a a philosopher called Kwame Paya, and it asks what you think the greatest social challenge of our time is, something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking. And it's got to be the climate, I think. I connect climate to everything else I do, even though I'm not sort of like at the front of my work, a climate activist. But I think that, you know, that our relationship to the planet, just like our relationship to one another, has been so distorted by capitalism and white supremacy and patriarchy over the last 500 years that, you know, we risk there not being another generation to look back. And so I think understanding that it's about our relationship to the world around us and that we're part of nature and also you know that nature 
tells us that our whole existence is in flux. Every time I hear someone say, oh, but we couldn't possibly do that because it wouldn't be sustainable in the context of international development. I now want to say, and occasionally I do, but like our planet's not sustainable. Why does every action we take suddenly have to be sustainable? Like we live in a world of flux. Absolutely. If you could tell the world something right now and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? I think it would be welcome change, but closely followed by make different choices. So just the title of our conferences, basically, but it's like get comfortable with change. We're living through it right now. Like if we've learned anything from the pandemic, it's that we are living through a time of change and people always have been, but if that hasn't woken us up to it, what will, right? Definitely. Can you think of somebody that you think is doing a lot of good in the world right now? Oh, there's a difficult question. To pick one person who's doing a lot of good in the world right now, it probably says a lot about me that I'm slightly blank. You can rephrase. Is there someone whose work you're admiring a lot right now? I'm going to come back to Adrienne Marie Brown writing because you know it's a book about movements and change that refers back to nature and what we can learn from nature about change and I think she's someone whose writing is helping me in my work you know to keep expanding and also someone that you know in this context of talking about what does it mean to do good I've not met her and I haven't asked her but probably wouldn't you know sit in this camp of describing herself as a good person like there's much more nuance and complexity I think probably I would imagine how she understands herself and that I think is something to reach for for us all definitely another strange question in a time of a global pandemic but where is your favorite place on earth a tricky tricky one so I grew up in this South Oxfordshire in the UK you know, privileged, affluent part of the world. And I wanted to get away from it, as I said, right in the ring. But now I love the kind of rolling hills. I love going there occasionally and kind of lying down in them. I just, yeah, there's something about the place that I come from. Then I also have like some special affection for parts of Tanzania. And particularly a place that I always come back to is Pembo, which is part of one of the Zanzibar islands and just the most amazing swim in the sea one morning there (laughs) and finally what books are you reading right now oh people always ask me that and I'm one of these people that reads a bit of books and then puts them down it's a bit embarrassing I am reading Holding Change the kind of facilitation guide by Adrian Marie Brown and I feel like I should say a novel, but I've just finished one and I've not started another one yet. So, yeah, I've got a lot of books on that shelf over there that I pull out and read a bit of. So I'm definitely like a kind of person that reads a bit of this there and that. Yeah, that's me too. What about podcasts? Are you listening to any or do you listen? I I go through phases. Actually, there's a podcast that Aja Marie Brown does with her sister. I forget what it's called right now, but we're talking about these times and relating it to I think it's called surviving I've got that wrong but it's something like surviving apocalypse I like that although lately I've not been much of a podcast person so I should get back on it and then one of my colleagues in healing solidarity is part of a podcast called remember who made them that talks about garment workers and it's actually really excellent very different from the other one but yeah it talks about the fashion industry and garment workers and I like that too again I dip in and out yeah (laughs) Yeah, same. <laughs> Marianne, where can people 
find you and where can they read your writing and and find the conference yeah so healing solidarity conference that's coming up just go to www.healingsolidarity.org and all the details are there i also have a website maryannclements.com currently i'm the interim CEO and uh, I have the title of Chief Transformation Officer at ADD International and so I'm not massively active on maryannclements.com at the moment but you can find out more about the things that I do do there and uh, you know I might resurface with more next year sometime. <laughs> Excellent and and we talked about Twitter before are you on Twitter? Yeah my hands are on social media so um, Marianne but not Clements from Hina so M-A-R-Y-A-N-N and M-H-I-N-A so it's my ex-husband's name and I've not changed the handles. Excellent well Marianne thank you so much for coming on the podcast I love interrogating these ideas particularly with people who are already thinking really deeply about them. I've admired your work from afar for some time so I'm really grateful to have you on the podcast and I look forward to what you're doing next. Thank you. Lovely to be with you. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jaja Wurrung and Tongrung people in the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land. Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders and elders of Indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen. The Good Problem Podcast is a project of Alto. We partner with purpose-driven leaders from the business, non-profit and philanthropic sectors to achieve aligned, ethical and sustainable impact. Find out more at www.altoglobalconsulting.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Alto.